Hello, everyone. Welcome to our latest episode of our Below the Radar conversation series. Today, we talk with Anne Livingston, community organizer and drug user activist. She is the co-founder of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users and is currently the executive project coordinator of the BC Yukon Association of Drug War Survivors. With our host, Am Joe Hall, Anne discusses the two current public health emergencies, the COVID-19 pandemic and the fentanyl contamination drug deaths in BC. They then examine the stark differences in government response to each of these crises. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi there, welcome to Below the Radar. Uh, great uh, that we have uh, my friend Anne Livingston uh, joining us today. She's one of the amazing uh, organizers and founders of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. I first met Anne back in the late 90s uh, at that time. She was working with uh, Bud Osborne and many people uh, uh, having meetings uh, every Saturday uh, at a place above the living room drop-in activity center at the corner of Powell and Jackson. And that was when a public health emergency was declared uh, back in 1996 or 97. It's a very different scenario right now, but a public health emergency was declared in 2016. We've had a contamination of the drug supply. We've had 175 people die in June of this year, and in the previous month, 171. That's the most uh, uh, people who have died of uh, drug-related uh, deaths uh, ever per month in British Columbia. 5,731 people have died since 2016. This is, of course, uh, happening at the same time as uh, COVID-19. Uh, during the pandemic where another public health emergency has declared where uh, government measures uh, have been taken uh, much more directly and much more quickly than it has uh, with the other uh, public uh, health emergency. So, uh, Anne, I'm just wondering if we can just start, if you could introduce yourself uh, a little bit. Yeah, um, I've lived in the, my name's Anne Livingston. I've lived in the downtown east side for going on 30 years now, and I live in the Four Sisters Housing Co-op, and um, I first started working as a volunteer who, on welfare with little kids. And um, anyway, so we formed Vandu with a, actually, um, Garth Mullins says the NDP didn't do anything. They did one thing. Uh, Vandu got funding and it was from a, um, a reduction in hospitalization fund that they had to do community work that would reduce hospitalizations. And it was a very small program, which has been discontinued now. Um, anyway, it was a, a, a step. Uh, uh, once we got going, we really, really got going. So they couldn't deny us funding. They tried to cut our funding. The, the, the work I'm doing currently is with the BC Yukon Association of Drug War Survivors. I, was prob I worked as the executive um, project coordinator at Vandu for around 10 years. And um, had I used to just go to their board meetings. I'm still like a friendly volunteer or whatever, but the BC Yukon Association of Drug War Survivors was finally funded uh, last fall. We got our April money in November. I think they were dragging their feet. And um, we're, we're starting a network of uh, drug user groups throughout the province. So we've got 10 drug user groups funded through our group right now. And we're the, the COVID has really made a terrible difference um, in being able to start user groups because much of the work that we're doing is COVID work. And when we asked for COVID money to, to uh, replenish our <laughs> overdose efforts, we were denied. So 
uh, the basic premise of the work I do is to get drug users to be uh, conscious of their power and to become activists and to see the politics of what's going on and to lobby for change. So many, many drug users are not resistant to that, but they only know service provision. So they want to do service provision and they want real jobs. And thankfully, those jobs are existing, but we're um, just getting going with these groups. So we've got a group in Chilliwack, um, uh, Maple Ridge, um, Nanaimo's just starting to work. Victoria has always had a group, but we plumped up some of their funding, so they're part of our network. Uh, Quinnell, actually, we're funding two groups there, and uh, Prince George, we funded pounds to make sure they had a location to do their, I think, unsanctioned OPS, but who knows? I'm a little out of touch with them. Uh, there's a redone group, which is the Rural Empowered Drug User Network in Nelson, and they're getting a chapter in Kimberly Cranbrook has just set one up, so they're calling themselves East Kootenai. And um, Kelowna Area Network of Drug Users is very small, but get, just getting going, mostly doing uh, uh, the workers are working in different harm reduction initiatives, but um, at least they're beginning to form themselves into a, a group. I don't know who I've left out, but anyway, there's a, um, there's a, it takes tremendous effort and we've done this just since November with a lot of chaos. So um, that's uh, for the 10 years leading up to the funding. I stayed on welfare. I have a disabled child who recently died, but my father died last year. So I was very much engaged in, um, and I have a, still have a, a child at home. So I did the single mother on welfare. So I'm a real expert on welfare and um, it's uh so I have a lot of intimate knowledge of um, the intersection between welfare, drug use, um, harm reduction, prison, uh, courts. You know, it's a tremendously complex mess that's been made and they've created a perfect storm of shitty policy that's causing these record high overdoses. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the in the late '90s, um, and when you were uh, organizing, uh, where you know prior to uh, uh, government sanctioning uh, sites like uh, Insight, you were doing work on the ground, which was essentially setting up sites that weren't government sanctioned right. as a form of of resistance. And so, there's a long history in Vancouver of um, uh, people taking action uh, with or without. Uh, government support. I'm wondering if you can just outline a little bit some of the work that you're doing at that time because it, it scaled up and I, I can remember uh, the times when uh, you guys came, uh, you and Bud and others from Bandu to meet with government ministers giving them an, an earful in, in government but that that was the culmination of years of work on the ground uh, where government yeah. wasn't listening. The first project wasn't Vandu, it was uh, with a group of activists and we had originally were meeting in La Cana and we uh, rented a small space in the downtown east side and began meeting there and um, it was just shocking the response we got, to, for me anyway, as an organizer and I was just, you know, baking cookies, we didn't have any money. I think John Turvey said we could have $100 a month to hold one meeting a month and it was just so inadequate we just started meeting every second week and then no one could remember which week was on so we just met every week and then uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of drug users came and I took notes and I had just really taken a course uh, that Tools for Peace had brought these Nicaraguans in about techniques for organizing where you note take and you start to really um, tease out what the most urgent issues are and then the actions that the group takes are really their actions you don't just come to a neighborhood like this and say you know you guys are all dying you know I've got this plan we're all going to do this uh, you have to really engage with them so it's their um, action and it really changes their lives there's this kind of introspective um, um, idea that their addiction isn't because 
of their own fuck up. It's, you know, uh, I, my, my, you know, people stand on a street corner oppressed and ashamed and they're using, you know, if, if only we could get heroin now, but, you know, they think it's their fault that poppies are grown in Afghanistan. But I think when people start to take a more broader political view of how they became addicted, how, why is the drug war continuing, how it feeds into the criminal justice system. It was a consciousness raising, very similar to the consciousness raising I remember going on around the women's movement and getting abortion. So um, the, the thing that I learned from my mother, who I don't think said a swear word in her whole life and was very goody two-shoes and had a, actually a master's degree in social work and worked in uh, Saanich mental health um, as a psychiatric social worker. Um, she was breaking the law and um, she was, you know, so I had a different impression about what breaking the law was and what she was doing was abortion counseling, which was illegal. And um, of course, Morgan Tyler was doing abortions. So it, it just came naturally to say, well, we should just do an overdose prevention site because uh, there was no other way to save people's lives. It's, it was shocking the number of overdoses occurring in the 90s in this neighborhood, certainly. And, and even like Prince Rupert had a tremendous high rate. We, you'd find pockets of it all over the place. Um, the, um, doing the, uh, the overdose prevention site was a tremendously empowering thing for uh, the people who came there and used the site. And it, it um, no one, they don't know whether to shit or go blind when you do that, because if they come and arrest you, this is, people need to understand policy in that sense. If you can get into court for running an injection site during a pandemic of overdoses or whatever you'd call it, um, you will be found innocent you are allowed to break the law to save lives. And um, that's why I would say after running maybe six or seven of these, so we would, we, if we had the, so, so there was one on Powell street and it was called the back alley and the police came in and um, you know, they shut it down and um, we were the bad, bad people or and people relapsed because of us and like the horrible um Deas and Dira and all those groups hated us for, for doing it, although we initially had their support. And I just kept saying to me, you're missing the boat on this. This is a huge healthcare thing. And um, they ignored us. And um, then the next time we got funding, I think was a couple of years later. And Bud Osborne was key to that in the sense that he had a tremendously powerful way of speaking through his poetry. So the whole kind of art scene and people wanted, you know, he was cool. You know, people wanted to be associated with that. So it was a really open-minded approach. And I think that's true of arts anyway. We, we need in these movements, you always need um, the people that know all the data. You need the voice of the actual person who, you know, you can't listen to them without starting to cry. They describe, you know, holding someone in their arms who died yesterday, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, then you need this other very powerful um, voice to ensure that the uh, public gets public education, really. And when, when surveys were done, I think Bud was quoted in the Vancouver Sun 23 times in one year. And those would have been the big bad years. The rate of overdoses in 1993 and in, into uh, I think 95 was bad. Um, didn't get uh, per capita, so the rate of overdose didn't get again get touched until uh, 2016. But what was ironic was um, Insight opened, and then they had to fight about Insight in the Supreme Court, and they won the case. And um, everyone kept saying, well, they're going to open everywhere. And no other injection site opened. I mean, Dr. Peter had an in-house one, but, you know, that's his, you know, if you weren't a member of Dr. Peter, you couldn't go there. So it wasn't open to the public. So I don't even think of, you know what I mean? It's great. And I'm, uh, you know, but anyway, it didn't rock my world. And um, 
the uh, next time we did anything, we did it again illegally. And I think the lessons you take from this is you don't get anything unless you just do it and you create this huge problem for the government because they know what you're doing is the right thing that they ought to be doing and they're not doing it because they just keep making more bureaucratic barriers for themselves. If you go to meetings of bureaucrats, they always talk about all the things they can't do. And if you go to meetings of the most you know, disenfranchised people living in alleys. And they'll always talk about all the things we can do this and we can do that, like very enthusiastic. So it's very, um, it's important to go with the grassroots movement and it's consciousness raising that's gonna change it and public health, public education. It's tremendously important that people understand, politicians understand, Horgan should understand that people in, uh, certainly in Vancouver, I don't know if I can speak for the rest of the province, do not want to be from that province that doesn't look after their people well enough, that hasn't reacted, that has grieving mothers and abandoned, you know, uh, orphan children. Can you imagine how many orphan children there are by now? It's shocking. And we meet these orphan children if they then also have addiction issues themselves and join our groups. It's, it's um, not something that can be tinkered with. It needs to be boldly confronted and move forward on no matter how painful and upsetting the conversation about it is. The more recent um, situation um, has really been uh, um, as a result of the contaminated drug supply, fentanyl, into the drug system itself. And so, uh, and with the added uh, piece of the pandemic uh, disrupting uh, traditional networks of uh, street drug supply, uh, mm -hmm. that's impacted things even further. So I, I'm just wondering from your point of view, if there was two or three governments could do, two or three uh, policy changes the government could do right now that would have material effects on the ground, what would they be? Well, I don't know if you're aware, uh, as soon as COVID hit, they made a, a risk mitigation document that allowed doctors to prescribe a certain number of drugs to people who qualified. And uh, the uptake has been 1,700 people out of probably 50,000 people who are, would be eligible. And the, uh, the, the moral of that story is never let the College of Physicians and Surgeons be in charge of anything. They're useless. They will only plump up doctors and it has nothing to do with saving lives. So, you know, if only we could take legal action. But the, um, all of the stuff that's being prescribed, none of it's injectable and none of it's smokable. So it's, in some ways, people aren't getting it for that reason. But everyone I know who's tried to get it has been um, punished by the person they've asked for. Their doctor won't give them the carries they used to have, and a carry means you can take away your prescription. Health Canada ordered that all prescriptions in Canada have 23-day um, uh, takeaways because they don't want people gathering at pharmacies. You know, this was part of a COVID a thing. And these doctors are completely disobeying that. The other thing that they could do right away is they have this uh, special access. So I don't know, every now and then on the news, you'll hear about some kid who's got a super rare disease and he needs to be saved and it's super costly. And they could get special access if they would just cover it by PharmaCare. And uh, what's happening in BC right now is uh, they will not cover heroin under PharmaCare. And because of the complexity of the molecules that are being produced everywhere in the world now, including all drugs, not just, so Chris, right now there's a, an alert for uh, crystal meth that has methanolene in it or something. I don't know the name. I'm terrible at pronouncing these things, but it's a poison. It'll kill you. And it's uh, because the crystal meth hasn't been made properly and it's something that's 
that has to be broken down to crystal meth, but it's sitting there as a contaminant. And those are, that's new in a way, you know, you don't necessarily have to warn crystal meth people that their crystal meth isn't really crystal meth. So um, it's happening with every supply that we have and uh, fentanyl's a, a small amount of, like no one's gonna grow fields and fields of poppies when they can pour some chemicals together and make 10 times the profits, maybe a hundred times the profits with the chemicals. So we're getting fentanyl in and, and um, of course the, every effort the police make to try and block this coming in and the federal government tr trying to secure the borders actually kills more people. So it's a really distressing and um, uninformed way of moving forward with it. And we have not been able to convince Farnworth to back off. He has constantly said, no, we're gonna ramp up our arrests of dealers. Well, every drug user is a dealer. Just hang around the downtown east side for a few minutes and you'll see the activity of the police is not to arrest dealers who they might even be afraid of, who might well be armed, or they might be paying off the police. The police can choose the one they want on that. And, and I'm just saying, I know what I'm talking about. I observe it all the time and they take the low hanging fruit, they get people with two rock and charge them with possession for the purpose of trafficking. So even these promises not to arrest for possession, um, they don't do that and they won't stop doing, um, Dave Murray had two rock on him and he got, it took him three years to work through the court system because he wouldn't back down and he pled, um, you know, not guilty. And um, it's shocking when you see the amount of money and paperwork and effort that goes in because he's in Pigeon Park with two rocks and some undercover cop comes up to him begging him to sell him a rock. And he finally goes, well, here, you can just have one. And then the next second, he's in a chokehold. This is, this is how, if the, if the average Canadian doesn't understand this is going on, yes, it is going on. And it continues to go on. And you can't believe what the police are saying. They need to be monitored very, very closely. And the tangle of the municipal level of policing versus the um, level that Farnworth has, Farnworth is in charge of our policing. The police board and the mayor and our municipality who pays for it and pays plenty for it and always pays more every year, year after year after year, um, has no control over our policing policies. That is a provincial thing. And also federal. The federal government will be a federal prosecutor on any drug charge. But what we find is they'll drop the drug charges and then they just got people engaged in these um, failing to comply with conditions of release, which no one can comply with because they're stupid. I mean, if you live in an alley and they tell you you have a nine o'clock curfew, exactly how is it you're gonna be inside by nine? And they, they're absolutely predictable. Police make tons of overtime hour on these. So this is one whole end of the problem. But what I'm trying to say to this provincial government in terms of health, that Minister Dix has been completely silent and hopeless on this for many, many years. I've never, and they could get special access to heroin. You know what they say? It costs too much. It costs too much. So junkie lives aren't worth it. They don't matter. And that, and the, the parents of these kids are really pissed. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking what we need is a legal strategy. I think they need to start suing and um, saying that it's very obvious that they're not doing what can be done. You can get special access to heroin. And if you make an application for it and Pharmacare would just put up the money to pay for it, We've got people on heroin. This is a big myth in, in BC that we've got heroin prescription. Well, we've got the people that were left from the um, controlled trials for heroin. And the only reason they were able to stay on heroin is because we organized the SNAP group and were like militant in their face 
no, you're not going to take a group of people, put them on heroin, and then just dump them after you finish studying them. So that was a big fight that Dave Murray formed SNAP. Anyway, and, and Vandu was certainly part of that, and uh, BC Association of People on Opiate Maintenance. And uh, we won that battle, but it only kept the people in the trial on the heroin. And that heroin is being paid for by the health authority. And then there's about 12 people, I'm not sure how many, a very small number of people on heroin on 135A at the clinic there. And that heroin is being paid for by Fraser Health Authority. And then when they get into this battle about it, we're going, well, then get more heroin out there. Because uh, no one seems to be moved. As I said, they are always, always telling us what they can't do. Um, they can do special access. I looked it up and they could do, cover it on pharmacare. It needs to be listed as one of the medications they'll cover and they need to cover some proper stimulant. So the big victory of the risk mitigation guidelines was that for the first time I have ever seen, you could prescribe either um, Ritalin or um, Dexedrine to people that were um, dependent on uh, or using them. They just said, if you're using them, come and get them. And they're not injectable. You can't inject either of them. If you inject drugs that aren't injectable, you're actually putting yourself at risk for endocarditis and soft tissue infections and chalk lung, where the chalk and the pills comes out in your lungs and it, it'll kill you. Believe me, it'll cost way more money looking after people who are very, very ill. So these are, we're not having any logical conversation at all. There's no, I, I don't know how to call Bonnie Henry. I would have called her months ago. And I, I don't know how, I've never spoken to Judy Darcy. I just think it's shocking. But to, to, to go back to the politics of this, I found a, a book about Ernie Winch. Do you remember this? Came out, but I found a book for, this book being for a dollar. And I don't know why I grabbed it. But anyway, the CCF had a plan to do a heroin prescription in Vancouver um, uh, in 1939, 1939. So in case anyone's thinking this is some new thing and it's too difficult for the left to understand, they should read this chapter in Ernie Winch's book. Not sure how to get it out, but um, because I know there's a real political thing, but it would appear that the recovery people, there's a sort of classic sense of recovery, but the, um, and that's that what people need to do to really have a good life if they've been involved in substance use disorder or any kinds of addictions, whatever you want to call it, or even casual drug use, is to become abstinent. And what's happening now, if you look carefully at anyone who's a spokesperson for abstinence-based programs, it's not your average AA goer or NA goer. It's people who work in a very lucrative, um, well, I don't know if they're lucrative. I don't know if they're making any money. I just know how much they cost to go to them. There'll be $35,000 a month to go to some of these very posh, lovely recovery places. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think people need the choice. You should be able to go there if you want to go there, but it's not covered. They'll take a couple of welfare recipients a month on some, you know, ration of people they're going to allow to go to that. And, but the bigger problem is, and you'll hear this from Patty Daly, there's a lot of people in recovery that are dying because you can't have a safe relapse. And everyone will say, and you'll hear it all the time, no one ever doesn't say the sentence, relapse is part of recovery. Well, now relapse is, is you're dead because you go to buy something, you're not in touch. And that's what we've been trying to say. Let's make peace with these people. Everybody who's released uh, from a recovery center should be given the name, the, the drug user groups need to be strengthened. We're just getting going. We are scrambling. And, but, but they need to be told, if you're going to use, go see these drug users in this town, wherever you're closest to, or phone this number, because we've now got a hotline. We've got an 800 number for anyone to call. And um, 
say, you know, where can someone meet someone and are we going to, because uh, if they can find drugs that are safe, or even if they find unsafe drugs, but they've got a buddy system to do them in, these are uh, informal networks of support. This is truly, uh, what do they call it, um, a fellowship. And that's what we're trying to do with the fellowship with the drug users. We don't want to just say five users are going to get funded in, um, I don't know, Penticton, and then they're going to walk around, pick up needles or run a little OPS. And then they stuff all the money in their pockets and they're the great workers and they have all the drug, their drug users are their clients. Well, that may well be a fine thing, but you're also going to need a drug user group that doesn't have any kind of that, that says to everybody, you know why you're a member of this group? Because you use drugs. And that's the, usually the reason they are excluded from everything. So they're kind of startled. But it, and then you just begin this process of saying, keep networking with people. If you don't know where to buy drugs, someone will know. If you're ever gonna use drugs, call somebody. You know, Just keep going with it until we can get these things going. And you can't find something that would interfere with that more than COVID. So uh, a lot of our initiatives have, um, when COVID hit, OPS has locked their doors. Uh, needle exchanges locked their doors. I was just shocked. We are all like in some kind of trauma mode. So we were trying to, like I was filling my car up with supplies and driving them to Chilliwack. You know what I mean? And we were opening a storefront that wasn't ready to open, that was all busted up inside and didn't have a bath. You know, the bathroom worked, but you know what I mean? I'm just saying we really, really suffered through this. And then when we went and said, uh, can we have some money? Cause we just did COVID. We're really seeing our efforts now doing all the COVID work with a certain group of people that are excluded from everywhere. Because the typical story tends to be, oh, well, you know, we've got funding for, or we've got housing for people like you. And then we find out that we now have another level of people that have get kicked out of that housing, you know, and, and there's, there always seems to be that. So we're, we're always ready to catch at the very bottom to say, well, we'll try and stick up for you. We'll try and get you back into that housing world. But the, the, over, the other part of this that's so really odd is simple things like making sure that everybody who has substance use disorder gets a disability check, not a, oh, employable check. And I don't know if people know how rotten. Our welfare system is like the US. It's, it's not what it was. So when you are on a certain level of welfare, you have to prove that you're looking for work in six weeks or they cut you off. So many, many like people that come to OPSs don't have welfare. And um, you asked, like when we did a survey way back, it was um, almost 30% don't have welfare at all. So even if I'm like magic and I know how to make a few phone calls, even I was just a volunteer, I was not employed. It was all run by volunteers that, that I can get them housing. They, they have no way to pay for that housing because then we have to get them on welfare and then get them housing. So we've, we've got a very poor um, uh, understanding of the position people really are in. And there's many, many uh, things that may seem like small things to a regular person, but will completely flatten a person who's trying to get their life back together. Now, the uh, Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police called on the federal government to decriminalize the possession of small amounts of illegal drugs for uh, personal consumption. Uh, we, uh, I was just on a, a panel yesterday where Garth Mullen sort of uh, critiqued decriminalization and, and there were some questions from the audience as well about the difference between decriminalization and legalization. If you were the policymaker and from your uh, vantage point, uh, what would your uh, call would be for government around, um, the, you know, when the Chiefs of Police called for decrim, I think from, from your point of view, uh, you likely have some critiques uh, around that, but 
what would the policy regime look like that would have material effects on the ground? Well, decrim uh, means that they're going to give out tickets. So I, Vandu's a little famous for tickets. So I'm a little more knowledgeable about tickets than I ever wanted to be. But um, so here's how it works with tickets. If decrim came in and you just got a ticket for possessing drugs, if, if you're middle class, you're gonna pay the ticket, right? So we would save a lot of people from getting criminal um, records and that's a good thing. But the people at the bottom aren't gonna pay some huge fine. They don't have the money to get through yesterday. They're not even on welfare, a ton of them. So it's a, it's a ploy for the police to continually rest and rearrest the same people for failing to comply for conditions of release because um, much to my shock, even a jaywalking ticket um, we'll eventually, uh, they'll keep notifying you to come to court and you don't, you don't pay the fine, then you don't come to court and then they'll issue what's known as a bench warrant and um, ye old um, stupid legal system. I have no idea what that is. But anyway, that's my son's alarm going off. Okay, so anyway, the, um, once you got, uh, haven't paid a ticket, now there's a bench warrant and now you will be arrested for something that is a crime. You have to pay these tickets or you have to show up in court. It's contempt of court. Contempt of court's a serious matter. And I have always thought in my life, oh, bullshit. And I thought, no, it's really serious. Those judges do not like this at all. So then you're in court and you're charged uh, another couple of charges. I don't know what they are. They're bullshit charges for poor people for failing to show up in court or failing to comply with conditions or failing to meet with some probation officer or failing to failing to on and on and on. 70% of the people in jail in this province and across the country as well are in jail waiting to see a judge because they, they won't give them a release. And they won't give them release. I mean, sometimes it's because you're the Bacon Brothers, but other, and sometimes it's because you beat your wife. So I'm not saying to get away from this, but it shouldn't be there for people who have um, failed to comply with previous conditions and can't be trusted to um, be released and show up in court because they're going to miss the court date. Well, my position is, of course, they're going to miss the court date. It's bullshit charges anyway. They aren't even criminals. They didn't actually do a crime, crossing the street or getting a ticket or, you know what I mean? These, so this, we need to be very, very careful with ticketable offenses. And it, it's getting people away from the discussion about legalizing drugs and regulating the drugs. And that's the big, big task at hand. It's the task we all have to do to try and educate the public. And we need way more soirees. That was one of the great things. I had seemed to um, read a few poems and then this huge drug policy um, discussion would break out and we knew our stuff. We made sure we knew our stuff and we brought people along and we, um, um, it's so weird that we have heroes from the most right wing rotten governments, uh, Terry Lake, who declared, oh, this OPS is legal and bam, OPS is. There was, and that was just me and um, um, Chris Ewert and Sarah in an alley with nothing. I was, I was pulling, um, I was on welfare, so I'd get these stipends for working at the street market. And, and it was, say, if you stayed there, you were in charge for 12 hours or something, you get 100 bucks. So I'd take the 100 bucks and divide it up into um, stipends. And if people came there to use their drugs and they seemed remotely capable, I'd say, look, I got to go pick up my kid. So here's the keys. You're in charge. Like maybe I, I knew that they knew how to do an overdose, and we were begging for Narcan. It was I can't even describe it to you. Anyway, the that's how I recruited volunteers because people really came to their best selves. It was people were very frightened. There was 
no exaggerating how many people were just dropping and we'd hear people screaming for Narcan or overdose and you'd run down and open your Narcan kit and it was empty because you'd already used it. So then we started, we don't let the ambulance guy go unless he gives you more Narcan. We're walking around the neighborhood and for some reason there was a difficult time to get Narcan. I'm trying to bully the Portland to give me some and the BC Center for Disease Control. Anyway, it was, we can't, you know, these are situations where people don't realize how these changes come about. They come about because you just say, no way, not on my shift. And then I think you have to use every capable capability and network really, really well. And that's what we're not doing right now. You know, Donald McPherson, Susan Boyd, you, a bunch of SFU students, anybody who wants to help should be able to go and have these policy discussions. So we're up to date. These molecules and drugs that are changing, they're changing all the effing time. We've now got, um, what is it? Uh, it's not, it's um, benzos. Benzodiazepines are a very serious addiction, very difficult withdrawal. That's all dumped now in the fentanyl. So I don't, you know, the thing that pops into my head, I don't know what other people think, um, mildly the overdoses went down when the fentanyl came, I mean, when the benzos were put in, because people just slept. Uh, fentanyl, you just use it, it's like the crack of opiates. You use it and it wears off very quickly and you use it again, but when it hits you, it hits you hard. So each time you use it, you're at risk for an overdose. And you're injecting four or eight times a day, many, many times a day more than heroin. So. Now when the benzos come along, people are, I just see all these people snoring in the alleys. And I first were just freaked, you know, you go up to them and then you realize they're not overdosed, but you can't really wake them up either. So anyway, that was the benzos. But now people are benzo dependent. They're going to go through terrible benzo withdrawal without it. So would we just please fix this mess before we end up with many more predictable, endless numbers of stupid things like now we're going to have to get a benzo program and a benzo detox and benzo prescription. Like if we could just get at it, I think, and this is personally my stuff. I think you have to go back to it being plant-based because I don't think we can win with pharmaceuticals and the war of molecules. So I don't know if people are aware if you have a molecule and you modify it and that one molecule was illegal, the new molecule you've added a, I don't know, acetyl group to or something. Um, it's a chemistry war. Um, now it's not illegal because it's not listed on the um, uh, drug laws that that drug is illegal. So they're constantly doing this and they create more and more harm doing this. We're getting poisoned MDA. We're getting like everybody gets more and more and more at risk through this. So I think we need to have a public education campaign because I think there's a certain kind of arrogance that people have you know, oh, well, I could be affected by COVID, but it's, you know, you got to be a, a sort of a junkie, you know, that kind of stigma. You've got to be one of those people to be affected by the overdoses. That is not true at all. And anyone who um, thinks that it couldn't happen in their family is, it's just hubris before the fall. You are just telling yourself lies. This is an incredible public health risk and it needs to be dealt with. And we need those really sobering conversations. And we should be in all of the you know, community centers doing this as soon as, you know, everyone's distanced to put your damn mask on. Um, I'm trying to think of the mayor that we had, NP, you know, he was some very right-wing guy and he did the right thing on this issue. Philip Owen. Philip Owen. So Philip Owen, like, why is he our hero? Why can't we have some heroes on the left? I'm just pleading with people, for God's sake. The, and I know Cycorn has been trying to get the NDP party to pass some of this stuff so that we can put pressure. There's no conversations. I can't get a conversation with anybody ever. And I get sometimes get very slow and reductant um, 
um, replies, but I think that the NDP should be um, revving up for this. Any party that takes this on is going to win because, I mean, even <laughs> I used to tease Leslie McBain because, um, what's that woman's name? Christy Clark used to put her arm around her all the time and, um, you know, like be on side with these moms, you know what I mean? And I was like, Jesus, they're going to win the election, for God's sake. Anyway, so I'm just saying that people need to get, get better informed. We need these arguments and dialogues to go on. The abstinent people need to come on side with harm reduction. They still do this, which should be tough love. And the more they suffer, the more likely they are to succeed. None of that's true. If they, there's no evidence to support any of it. The other thing that's a really quick win is they've got to do something like 48% of the people in Vancouver Coastal Health are being found in supported housing or private SROs. And um, there has to be a guest policy that doesn't kill people. The other thing, honestly, every day I have to slug through another pile of COVID, blah, 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 blah. And honestly, you know, there's as much misinformation going out. Just saying, if I said something about COVID and called CBC, they'd go, oh, really? You have a PhD? Sure, we'll put you on, you know. Anyway, the, um, she needs to give an update. We want to know where these people are found. When I'm, we're running user groups, what's the whole point of setting up a network of drug user groups? If we can't find out, I, I don't care if you, I don't, don't give me their names. I don't give a damn. But we've, you know, is a Shady Lane rest home in North Vancouver. There's been this many cases and this many died. What the hell? If they can say that and not get sued, they can tell us where these, these overdoses are. And at least the kind of users that are really motivated to do this um, organizing work that we're doing, we can come in with a plan. Okay, I heard it's here. Let's go there. You know what I mean? Like to be activists on the ground, you need to be able to go wh where it is. And we should be getting these updates every day. Why is it not public knowledge? If it's, if it's fine to, to, for us to know where every damn case of COVID is in the province, why don't we know where every overdose is? And I mean weekly. And that, you know what, also, and I've already prepared, they said, well, you know, we don't get the, uh, we don't get the, um, all of the tests. They send it away for it to get a complete set of what was in their urine and blood of that dead person. Well, I'm pretty sure there's a pretty strong clue when you can see the, um, and by the way, people are now dying more of smoking than injecting. And this needs to be made much more clear. There should be no injection site or OPS that does not allow smoking, like for heaven's sakes. Anyways, um, and people go to the rooms and smoke if you can't smoke at the injection site, like obviously. But anyway, the, um, you can see at the site of the dead person what's happened because people go down like they just, bam, they go down. And whatever they were just last doing, there'll be a needle if they're injecting, there'll be um, tinfoil and whatever and whatever's left right there it is you, you could use words like alleged or suspected or like you know they can hedge their bets on it but we need this this information and I think that um, they'll be seen as heroes this will not be a bad thing I don't know why they don't do it and we as Garth says we now know how they respond to public health emergencies with incredible detail with incredible uh, rigor and Except if it's junkies, they can just fuck off and die. Like what, what, what else can you conclude from this? So that, and then I think, and just on my personal thinking, we've seen action before when we took legal action, when we've, we've gone for a lawsuit. We sued the, you know, Van Du tried to sue the 
um, Health Canada. And I think um, Conroy was our, and then Insight suit and they put them together and then they dropped Bandu's suit. We were saying that the drug laws are killing people, but, and it never got heard and we didn't have a high cooperation level between the lawyers. But anyway, I'm just saying, um, we need to have strategy sessions. Let's do what works. The idea that we're just gonna sit around and count dead bodies and weep is not acceptable. And thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar and thank you for all the uh, incredible work you do. Uh, hopefully there's going to be a sustained conversation on this to uh, move the public policy dial. So thank you. Okay. Thank you. And I just, if anyone is interested on August 15th, there is a huge march in the downtown east side. So look for it on Facebook, Wonder Van Du or any of the user groups and you'll see it there and come down and join us. Thanks again to Anne Livingston for joining us on this episode of our Below the Radar conversation series. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. As always, we want to thank the team that puts this show together, including myself, Paige Smith, Fiorella Pinios, Melissa Roach, Kathy Fang, and Jackie Obunga. David Steele is the composer of our theme music, and thank you for joining us. Tune in next time for a brand new episode of Below the Radar. <laughs>